time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome to the Cold War, episode 74, and today we're going to do an interview. It's slightly out of our linear timeline, but not by much, only by, I don't know, a couple of episodes. Okay, 10, all right, 20, maybe, in a couple of months. Anyway, our guest today is Ben Steele, a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations, and for listeners of Alex Jones, you probably better know them as the New World Order Shadow Government. Ben has written a fantastic (laughs) book on the Marshall Plan, cleverly titled The Marshall Plan. I think uh, Barry and Stan, our marketing guys, came up with that. And I believe uh, congratulations are in order, Mr. Steele. Thank you so much. If you hear the whirring in the background, that's my black helicopter, okay? Nice. Just just wanted to make that clear. (laughs) Show off. Well, the congratulations, I thought, is because I I heard a speech from your president, uh, Trump, this uh, this week said he was bringing he was bringing American steel back, and I assumed he was talking about you. <laughs> of course, what else could he be thinking? Before we get started on the book, can you tell us a little bit about the Council on Foreign Relations? Because I'm not sure the the average person knows a great sure. deal about it. We've probably heard about it. Can you tell us a little bit about its history and and, and what it does? Yeah, uh, we're um, a nonprofit membership organization and a think tank. We've been around since 1921. Uh, we were created um, at the same time after the First World War as the uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs or Chatham House, as it's known in London. Um, so when you hear about so-called Chatham House rules, that is, you know, there's non-attribution rule. You can say you, you, you heard something fascinating here, but you can't say where you heard it, who you heard it from. Uh, we have the same rule here, council rule, even though almost every meeting that's done here now is uh, on the record and, uh, and, and webcast. Um, so the, I think the, the big purpose of those two institutions was to make sure the world would never descend into um, uh, world war again. So we didn't quite achieve that. Uh, but we're doing a lot better now, aren't we? <laughs> you do a great job. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get stuck into it. Ray, do you want to uh, kick off the uh, official questions? Sure. So, Mr. Steele, uh, for those people who are not familiar with the Marshall Plan, uh, could you give us a quick overview of what exactly it was? Sure. Um, in 1947, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union broke down irrevocably uh, over Germany. Um, and uh, General Marshall, who had just become uh, Secretary of State in January, uh, decided that it was time for the United States to take 
unilateral action to secure its uh, economic and security interests in the parts of Europe that weren't already under uh, Soviet domination, uh, in other words, uh, Western Europe. Uh, the problem was that um, uh, Truman, when he became president in 1945, uh, was determined to follow through on his predecessor, FDR's commitment to withdraw American troops from Europe within two years of the end of uh, fighting. Um, there were over three million troops in Europe at the at the end of the fighting, um, and uh, this created real problems. Uh, in 1946, when Joseph Stalin uh, showed definitively that he wasn't going to be happy with his new borders, particularly his southern borders, he started pressing uh, territorial claims on Turkey and Iran. He refused to withdraw Soviet troops from Iran. These were troops that had been based there during the war under treaty. And he only backed down when President Truman sent a military flotilla. So the military throughout 1946 was thinking of, of ways basically to fight asymmetric warfare, um, to secure America's position in Europe without having to rely completely on the military. Um, so the the idea, which came mainly from the military, interestingly enough, not from economists, was to leverage America's economic dominance. Um, the United States accounted for about half of all world manufacturing out, output um, uh, at the end of the uh, uh, Second World War to counter the Soviet military. Uh, superiority in Europe, uh, uh, particularly uh, conventional. Obviously, the United States had the uh, atomic bomb, but no one was uh, contemplating using it in, in, in Europe at the time. Um, so uh, this was a really revolutionary idea um, in, in diplomacy, to, to find a way to buttress our allies in Western Europe so that they could stand up and defend themselves against the Soviet Union and the possibility of a resurgent Germany on their own. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you talk about it in those terms. One of the things we've talked about a lot on this show over the last few years is that economics can be used as a form of warfare, um, even particularly and most common, I guess, to, to common day, uh, economic sanctions is the form that most of us are aware of. But there are lots of other ways of using money as money instead of guns. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. had uh, very much a geostrategic purpose here. This, this, uh, this was, of course, partly about humanitarianism. Um, Western Europe in the immediate aftermath of World War II was called by the New York Times the quote-unquote dark continent. Um, it wasn't just the physical destruction, but it was really the, the social and, and moral destruction uh, of the, the continent that uh, disturbed people. It was becoming lawless. Uh, there were mass retributions all over the continent. Um, the, the Truman administration really feared that as Western Europe uh, sank further into um, uh, chaos and despair, uh, that they would turn to um, alternative modes of government. And the uh, Communist uh, Party in Italy and France, as you know, was particularly uh, powerful in the aftermath of the war. So as we get to May 1947 and uh, uh, the eve of 
uh, General Marshall's fav- famous Harvard speech, where he introduces the idea of uh, a Marshall Plan for, for, for Europe, um, the communists are part, a big part, of coalition governments uh, in Italy and France. And it's uh, very much part of the American agenda to not just force them out, but to set the populations, the local populations, against the communists so that they would remain committed to democracy and free markets. And why did the Americans care at this stage? I mean, I think a lot of people have the impression that the Marshall Plan was an act of pure humanitarian charity on behalf of America. But from reading your book, I get the impression that there was some self-interest involved as well. Oh, absolutely. This was what I would call an enlightened form of America First policy. Um, The overriding concern um, of the Truman administration, the the State Department and and the Pentagon, uh, was to ensure that um, no uh, hostile power in Europe, be it the Soviet Union or, or Germany, um, ever controlled uh, Western Europe because that would have been a fundamental economic and security threat to the United States. Um, so this was the, the, the thinking behind it. Um, and if we were not going to be clever about how we leveraged um, our economic power in the world, then we were going to have to rely on the military again. And, and this was a big problem because the, there was no public support in the United States for stationing millions of troops um, in, in Europe. Everybody wanted the, the troops um, home. Uh, so we, we had to find another way to buttress our interests. As um, I discuss in the book, however, if the United States hadn't, in the end, provided a security element, a sort of military escort for the Marshall Plan, which became, in fact, NATO in 1949, the whole initiative would never have worked. Can we, can we just split those two things apart and drill down on them a little bit? You said it could be, uh, Europe could have become an economic and uh, security threat to the United States. Let's start with the, the, the second one first. How would it have become... A security threat. I mean, the very reason, one of the, the key reasons America is the economic superpower and the, at the end of 1945 is because it's got a couple of big oceans uh, protecting it from uh, what happened to Europe. So what would the security of threat have been, do you think? Well, the Soviets made clear in 1946 that they were uh, determined to take over strategic sea lanes in Europe. As you know, the Soviet Union was primarily a a landlocked uh, superpower. I mean, it was determined to to change that. For example, um, threatening the the Turks um, in order to get some uh, strategic role in the um, uh, the Dardanelles and the Turkish Straits, uh, they wanted to station their military there. Uh, Truman made absolutely clear he wasn't going to tolerate that and was willing to go to war over it. Um, but if the Soviets had managed to push into Western Europe, or had, they had used their fifth columns in countries like France um, uh, to. Um, extend political power into Western Europe, then these key strategic 
sea lanes throughout Western Europe could have been controlled by a hostile power. Um, and Western Europe, next to the United States, was the, by far the most um, uh, important economic region in the world. This was uh, a key economic uh, trading partner of the United States. Um, so we, we had vital interest um, both on the economic and the security sphere. And from what you just said, though, they sound like they're fairly closely related. I mean, I, my dominant theory is that warfare is usually about economics first and sometimes security second, but uh, it's usually about economic people trying to achieve economic parity um, or, or superiority. Um, and I want to. So, can you talk about the economic threat a little bit more and help our, our audience understand the American viewpoint? Uh, about that in 1946? What was the economic threat to the United States if more countries in Europe started uh, going communist with their governments? Well, the uh, the United States in um, uh, 1945, 1947 uh, was not autarkic. It was hardly self-sufficient. Um, and uh, we we had, of course... Uh, before the war, uh, relied on extensive trading relationships uh, with Europe, uh, both in terms of raw materials and manufacture. And when these relations did breaking down um, in the 1930s, um, not only did this help deepen uh, the Great Depression in the United States, um, but in the view of um, FDR's State Department and, and Treasury, um, this economic cycle of, of um, economic collapse driven by uh, the deterioration of trade relationships, of currency stability, was fueling the environment of, of misery and anger that paved the path to aggression for Hitler and Mussolini. So they very much believed that the so-called economic aggression of the of, um, uh, the 1930s led to World War II, the actual physical uh, aggression. They believed that there was a, a tight linkage between the two. So if we could stay with the economics for a second, especially in terms of what, uh, what is important to America now that the war is over with, uh, you quote in a written report in uh, 1946 by the SWNCC, the State War and Navy Department staff, mm -hmm. which said, the conclusions the conclusions is is inescapable that under present programs and policies the world will not be able to continue to buy united states exports at the 1946-47 rate beyond another 12 to 18 months they anticipated substantial right. decline in the united states export surplus having would, that would have a depressing effect on business activity and employment in the United States. And in 1946, mm -hmm. the gross national product of the United States was already down 11.6% from the previous year as the government right. stopped spending money on the war effort. Even Sec uh, Navy Secretary James Forrestal characterized American priorities in Europe as economic stability, political stability, and military stability in about that order. So, so like you were saying just a moment ago, I guess we're just now that the war is over with, we're deeply concerned about having open markets or our economy could go down another very dark path. 
That's right. And we have massive overcapacity uh, after the war because, of course, much of our industry was devoted to producing armaments. Um, and now it's not doing that any longer. So obviously uh, we need people around the world who are, are going to be in a position uh, to buy our goods. And rem- remember, they, they, they can't just um, uh, do that indefinitely with uh, dollars or, or gold because they're going to run out of it in short order. So the only way that we can uh, maintain um, this industrial capacity is to revive our um, uh, former major trading partners. Um, and this really read, led to a revolution in thinking behind the American business lobbies in the 1940s. Prior to the Second World War, um, they had been very traditionally protectionist and mercantilist. Now you, you see this realization that um, if uh, U.S. industry is going to thrive. We need to have um, uh, trading partners um, that can not only buy our goods in the in the short term, but can produce things that we need to sell to us. To have a balanced trading relationship, um, or without a, a balance in trading relationship, ultimately our industry was going to decline and wither. So America has genuine economic interests in making sure that they are able to trade freely with Europe and they their concern is is that if as the result of desperate economic situation that Europe found itself in after the war uh, which is putting it mildly um that the USSR would come in, use a combination of economic and political and maybe even military influence to get a lot of these countries to join the communist trading bloc, which would then cut off those countries from America in terms of their ability to buy and sell with uh, countries in, uh, in Europe. Correct. Um, now, the uh, Soviets um, were, were not going to use identical means in, in uh, Eastern and Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, where they um, were either occupying countries or uh, had their troops in very close proximity, um, they were obviously in a position to, to dictate local government policy. And one of the um, I, I think most interesting parts of uh, my tale is um, uh, about how Czechoslovakia, after the announcement of the Marshall Plan, went from being a country that was really on the border of East and West to becoming um, uh, irrevocably um, in the um, uh, Eastern Communist camp. Uh, Czechoslovakia was a really interesting case study. Um, uh, it had a legitimate uh, coalition government elected in 1946, uh, one-third Democrat, two-thirds, uh, uh, excuse me, two-thirds uh, small-D Democrats, one-third uh, communist. And the, the Soviets really did allow them a considerable measure uh, of autonomy um, uh, with only the proviso that their foreign policy not be hostile to Moscow. And after Marshall's Harvard speech, 
um, in which he made clear that um, the offer of aid would be open to um, all of Europe. The Czechs made the mistake of expressing too much enthusiasm about participation. And it's that point that Stalin realized that the Marshall Plan was a, a, a mortal threat to this new hard-won security buffer that he had built up uh, through the war. And he began cracking down immediately uh, on one country after another in Central and uh, Eastern Europe, um, destroying the remaining coalition governments in countries like um, uh, Poland, uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, eliminating any vestige of non-communist uh, influence. And then finally, in February of 1948, um, uh, after the Democrats in Czechoslovakia made clear that they were not going to stop um, um, uh, uh, trying to participate in the Marshall Plan, uh, Stalin instigates a, a communist coup. Um, and at that point, Czechoslovakia f falls irrevocably um, into the uh, Soviet sphere. So that's why I argue in the book that it's really not until Marshall's speech that the Cold War really truly begins, that both sides, the United States and the Soviet Union, become um, um, permanently uh, determined to pursue their interests unilaterally. That is no longer through the cooperative framework that had been agreed um, in 1945 at Yalta and Potsdam. And can you drill down on the Soviet view a little bit more for us? Uh, what uh, After Marshall's Harvard speech, what was Stalin's concerns with how this was going to affect his um, security and economic interests? Right. Well, Stalin was really um, uh, thrown back um, by Marshall's speech. Um, uh, Marshall was very, very careful in his language, although he was absolutely determined to make sure that there was no way the Soviets could possibly participate uh, in the Marshall Plan. Um, at the very least, it would ensure that it would never get legislated in the um, United States. Um, he was determined to make sure that Stalin would reject this transparently generous offer, because then it would be the Soviets who would be blamed around the world for splitting Europe and uh, not the United States. Now, the reason Stalin was torn is that he was, in, in, in some ways, um, a, a Marxist ideologue. He believed um, uh, clearly in this idea that um, uh, capitalism must uh, inevitably collapse. Um, and he was convinced that this, uh, this crisis of capitalism had finally arrived in the United States and that the United States would ultimately be obliged to give Europe billions and billions of dollars just to bail out its own industry. And as you see, he may have been extreme in that view, but there was this concern in the United States, too that if it didn't uh, find resilient um, uh, markets for its exports, that indeed there would be a, a, a crisis of sorts in the United States. So Stalin was hoping he might actually be able to get unconditional uh, aid from the United States. Um, 
this this was um, uh, uh, clearly not not in the offing. Uh, but he went into uh, discussions with the British and the French about it in Paris in um, uh, July of '47. He sends his foreign minister uh, Molotov to tease this out to see if there's an opportunity there. Uh, but ultimately, he's got three very very compelling reasons to resist the Marshall Plan. Uh, one is that it signals that the United States is going to maintain a robust political, um, economic, and ultimately, he believed, military presence um, uh, in Europe. Uh, this deeply disturbed him because he believed uh, Roosevelt, when Roosevelt said uh, at Tehran in, in uh, 1943 that he was going to withdraw all American troops uh, from Europe uh, within two years of the fighting. The Marshall Plan made clear to Stalin that that was not going to happen. Second, Stalin was deeply concerned about this 180-degree change in U.S. policy towards Germany. Um, in 1944, official U.S. policy towards Germany was a so-called Morgenthau plan to dismember and deindustrialize Germany. Stalin was uh, very favorable towards this idea because it would uh, permanently eliminate Germany um, as uh, an economic and security threat to the um, Soviet Union. Now, the U.S., as I said, is doing a 180 and decides that in order to revive Western Europe, it must revive Western Germany as quickly as possible to turn it into the industrial engine of a new integrated Western European economy. And Stalin considers that, again, to be a mortal threat to his new security belt. And finally, he discovers that he cannot rely on his satellite countries. Uh, the Poles and the Czechs are expressing too much enthusiasm uh, for participation, and he has to make it clear that it is unacceptable for uh, any country uh, in the uh, Soviet sphere to participate in this uh, imperialist trick. And I, I, I really appreciate your, your breakdown there, and I just want to remind our audience um, uh, on, on a couple of things, as, as you indicated, during the Tehran conference and then the Yalta conference, by the way, we spent 25 hours on this show talking about the Yalta conference, and I'm not exaggerating. We did 25 hours, 25 episodes on the Yalta conference. Um, that Stalin was led to believe by Churchill and Roosevelt that there would be reparations, uh, at the end of the war, coming out of Germany for the Soviets, who took by far the largest uh, brunt of Nazi aggression, both in terms of, of loss of life and economic destruction, destruction of, of, of cities and villages and, and, and uh, infrastructure, that they would get, you know, the $10 billion was the half of the $20 billion was the number that they played with at Yalta. Um, and that was kind of part of the handshake deal that he'd had with the West for the, pre, for the last sort of three years of the war against the Nazis. All of a sudden now, they've, as you say, they've done a 180. FDR's dead, Churchill's gone, 
Um, and, and, and Truman and his inner circle are going, no, nah, the deal is off. Secondly, as you say, Germany, the aggressor in two wars that have been fought uh, against Russia, amongst others, particularly this last one, they took a huge hit. Uh, the, the Americans are now saying, no, nah, we're going to build Germany back into an economic power. Again, America doing a 180. I think the the... the the, the sort of view that the general public has over this, as much as they have one these days, is that uh, this was Russian aggression. It was all about Russian aggression after World War II taking over Europe. I put myself in Stalin's shoes and I'd feel pretty, uh, pretty pissed off myself that uh, my allies, with uh, air quotes around them, had uh, done a 180 and screwed me over, and I, I need to batten down the hatches. I'm pretty sure that's how Stalin was thinking. I get accused of being too nice to Stalin on this show all the time, but I try and <laughs> I try and put myself in his shoes. Wouldn't you be pissed off if your allies reneged on the two absolutely critical components of your uh, of your arrangement? Yes. Um, I think you'll agree in the book, I, I try as best as possible to um, uh, reflect the legitimate aspects of the, the Soviet view. Um, and the demand for reparations was not on the face of it unreasonable. I, I would point out that FDR being FDR never agreed, um, uh, at least online, uh, at Yalta to um, a fixed dollar amount for reparations. So he agreed to the principle of um, reparations. Um, but a, a few things led to the collapse of this, I wouldn't call it agreement, but framework for cooperation. Um, and that was that Western Germany was really sinking into disorder and chaos. Um, and part of it was the fault of American policy, the Morgenthau plan. Um, Morgenthau himself, who had been um, uh, FDR's Treasury Secretary, had been warned that his plan would lead to mass starvation in the country. And General Lucius Clay, who is um, our military governor um, in the uh, uh, American uh, occupation zone of Germany, is, is furious about this policy. Um, he does his best unilaterally to um, uh, reverse what parts of it um, he can, but this is costing the American taxpayer an enormous amount of money um, to keep this um, uh, country uh, afloat. One in three babies in Germany by uh, 1847 is dying within one year. Um, so the, the, the Americans really have to change policy. And part of it is to, to say to the Soviets, look, we um, cannot uh, uh, have Western Germany paying $10 billion in reparations. That's a little over $100 billion in today's money, when that would effectively be coming from the U.S. taxpayer because Western Germany is not self-sufficient. 
um, uh, Stalin's answer to that was, well, then, um, you know, this is their problem. We don't care how they eat. We don't care how they manage to mine coal. Um, they're the ones that caused the problem. Um, they're going to have to keep lowering their standard of living until they can pay. And this was, this was not acceptable to the United States. The United States also had a legitimate gripe against um, uh, Stalin in terms of how he was failing to uphold his commitments at Yalta. At Yalta, Stalin had committed to the principle of economic unification of Germany. And Stalin was doing everything possible to make sure that that could, could never be. For example, he was turning East German companies into Soviet uh, companies by taking 51% stakes in all these key companies and then siphoning off the production and sending it back to the, the um, uh, Soviet Union. Um, so he was making any possible economic unification of the country impossible. Also, the Soviets themselves were had committed to providing uh, agricultural goods to Western Germany from the east, east the east being a, a more agricultural region, and they themselves were saying that they couldn't meet their commitments um, in that respect because agricultural production was um, uh, insufficient. So both sides uh, were claiming that the other was violating um, the agreements at Yalta and Potsdam. The spirit of Yalta, if not uh, actual, you know, written down things, yeah. Um, before we move on, Ray, I, I just wanted to remind people too uh, that uh, uh, Marxist theory, and particularly Leninist and Stalinist theory into the, you know, the 30s and 40s, had been predicated on the idea that the capitalists would destroy themselves, that capitalism would fall, which would create an opportunity for socialist movements to take hold. And, and I gather, both from your book and other things that I've read, is that uh, World War II and the economic collapse after World War II may have been seen by Stalin and, and Molotov and others as exactly what had been predicted. The prophecy had come true. The capitalists had fought each other. And let's, let's, <laughs> I just got into an argument with somebody at a, at a chess club uh, on the weekend about this yet again. He was trying to tell me, no, no, the Nazis were uh, socialists because they had the word socialist in their, uh, <laughs> As as an economist, as a highly esteemed economist, Ben, can you please tell us? But not socialist, no. Yeah, um, that the capitalists had fought each other. It had caused economic destruction, and this was now the time for the 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 socialists, uh, led by the vanguard of the Bolshevik Party in the in the USSR, to step in and 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 bring to fruition what they had been working towards. Uh, directly or indirectly for the last 40-odd years. And then here comes America, the one surviving capitalist entity who's going to bail out capitalism. It was basically the GFC bailout, but on an international scale. All right, capitalism has failed. It's created war. It's created destruction. It's created poverty. But we're going to bail it out and give it another shot. Yeah, well, look, look at um, Western Europe from Stalin's perspective. In France and Italy, you've got these resurgent local communist parties. 
Um, and many people predicted that um, uh, in the uh, forthcoming April 1948 Italian elections that the, the communists were going to, to take power. So things look pretty good. With regard to the U.S. and Britain, uh, Stalin was convinced that these two ultimately had irreconcilable um, interests um, and that they were going to go to war with each other. Um, that one he he clearly got wrong, um, but it, you know it's 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 an interesting counterfactual. If the Americans had not intervened with the Marshall Plan, um, one could easily imagine a situation in which the uh, communists would have come to power in Italy in in 1948, perhaps a little later in in France. Although there may have been a, a, a Gaullist backlash that would have pushed France um, uh, to the uh, to the far right, uh, things would have been certainly much different than the way they, they, they turned out. But was Stalin wrong about the UK and the USA? I mean, it looks to me like coming out of World War II, after, well, after Bretton Woods and after some of the restrictions were put on, the, the Americans basically dismantled the British Empire. They did dis sample. They, they dis well, that, that was my last book, as you may know, The Battle of Bretton Woods, which is, ba which is basically a story of how the United States used Britain's impending bankruptcy um, in order to force liquidation of the British Empire. Uh, but um, uh, I would emphasize that um, what you see under Truman is some very important, I would call them conscientious objectors from the FDR administration, um, in particular Dean Acheson and George Kennan, uh, coming to the fore. Um, Acheson in particular um, was vehemently, vocally against um, FDR's treasury, FD, the policy of FDR's treasury to um, uh, force Britain into some sort of imperial bankruptcy. And when we get to February of 1947, um, and the British come to the State Department with a so-called blue letter, that's a, a document of uh, uh, extreme importance for General Marshall, um, uh, telling the Americans that um, we're, we're basically giving up the empire. We're pulling all our troops out of Greece, uh, where they are protecting the uh, royalist government against communist uh, insurgents, um, that they're going to seize all financial support for Turkey. Um, you know, the, the chickens really come home to roost. And Atchison says, my, my God, this is, this is basically what I had warned against. Um, and so uh, uh, Truman's State Department is uh, determined to turn um, uh, FDR's um, policy on its head, um, that this uh, imperial liquidation uh, policy towards Britain has been a disaster, um, and that we have to do our utmost to prop Britain up, because otherwise the cost to us um, will be um, utterly enormous. But at the end of the day, they, they still won the economic war against the British trading bloc. They managed to open up all of those countries to free trade, and they, they took over the British Empire effectively, economically. not They didn't have to do it militarily. If you don't have to do it militarily, there's a, if you can do things economically, it's a, a, a better outcome, I think, than having to do it militarily, right? Sure, but I think you would agree with me that if we could have rerun history, 
Um, uh, nobody would have wanted the uh, British Empire to collapse as violently as it did um, in, in 1947. Um, that was in um, uh, no one's interest in uh, either Britain or the United States. Well, it was messy, and it led to a lot of lot of lives lost in different parts of the world, where, where it generated conflicts, many of which are still going on to this very day. Of course. Um, oh, sorry, Ray. Do you want to move on with the questions? Oh, absolutely not. I want to keep this argument going. Let me jump in here as the <laughs> as the as the arrogant American American for a second. Um, going back to what Mister Stewart, I just have to, I just have to do this. So we know that we can't agree on amount to give to Stalin his reparations because like you said a couple of minutes ago, America's going to end up paying that. And if Germany stays right. mired in, and we did that after world war yeah, one, right? Absolutely. So absolutely. remember this memory is still very much alive. Absolutely. And, and to add to that, that if Germany stays demoralized, weak, every, and every other mm-hmm. uh, negative thing, then that certainly is the breeding ground for another demigod like Hitler to come along. So, so the, and, and when you take all of that and you couple it with Stalin's actions from August of 45 until mid 1947, where he's pushing in the Dardanelles, he's pushing to his South. He's given Turkey a hard time. Mm-hmm. And now the British are saying that they're, that they're pulling out of uh, Turkey. Um, of course, the Americans are going to have to come up with something because it's all about to fall apart and it could end up setting up, Another war. So I, I guess my big point is the things that happened between August of 45 and mid-1947, it surprises me that Stalin was surprised that we came back with some kind of concrete plan to deal with his behavior for the last two years. Um, I guess he just thought he could just keep pushing and see how far we would go. Yes, we didn't pull out our troops like FDR said we would, but one, FDR is not there anymore. And two, the way Stalin is acting in uh, early 47 and late 46 is a lot different than what he was promising uh, FDR. So the fact that he was surprised and felt that he was the injured party here still amazes the the arrogant American part of me. Well, you see, Stalin was still operating very much from a, a World War One mindset. Um, he saw the Americans go home immediately after World War One and re- retreat into isolationism, and he believed that they were going to follow the same path again um, after World War Two. But that that was probably not an unreasonable assumption, right? Which would have happened if he hadn't started acting up and getting aggressive is certainly starting ah, there with, you are. was starting with Poland, but that's just my take on it. Yeah. He, he forced us to stay in. But with, even with Poland, we might've written off, but right. Turkey, Turkey, Turkey and Iran, we were never going to write off. Right. Um, and I think he, he made a, perhaps a huge strategic mistake um, uh, in thinking that um, um, he could expand into uh, Turkey and Iran without a, a, um, a military confrontation with the United States. That was completely unacceptable um, uh, to the State Department or the, uh, the Pentagon. And it wasn't even on his percentages agreement with Churchill. They were. No, it was not. Yeah. Um, but you know, note that Churchill, um, you know, for, for uh, all his uh, loathing of, of, of Stalin, 
um, always made clear that um, uh, Stalin was um, allegiant to the percentages agreement. Yeah. Um, and he was. He, he was um, uh, reasonably allegiant. Um, it's clear that the, you know, with hindsight, that the State Department um, overreacted um, on Greece. Um, they were absolutely convinced that as soon as the British pull, pulled out, the Soviets would, would move in. Uh, but the Soviet archives make absolutely clear that um, uh, Stalin by that time had shifted his focus from the Mediterranean um, uh, to Central Europe, that he, he had given up on Greece. Um, in fact, um, he had uh, long-running fights with, with Tito, uh, in Yugoslavia, who continued to support the Greeks, and S- Stalin told him he was out of his mind that the Americans would never give up Greece, um, and we are not going to fight the most powerful country in the world over Greece. Just not that important. But Germany for Stalin was non-negotiable. Um, and, and this is really the heart of the Cold War conflict, that neither the United States nor the Soviet Union could abide a unified Germany being an ally of the other. Hmm. Now, my understanding is that from the very get-go, when Marshall and George Cannon started to conceive of the Marshall Plan, they tried to design it deliberately to make sure the Soviets would decline to take part in it. They, they stacked it full of conditions. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Because I think that's important to understand. Yeah. Um, Marsh, for Marshall and Cannon... Um, it was critical that the Soviets not be part of the Marshall Plan um, for political reasons, for geostrategic reasons, obviously. Um, but they did not want to uh, present the plan that excluded the Soviets. Um, the, um, Marshall thought that would be a political disaster, that it would alienate the left in Western Europe, which would see the United States um, as um, uh, being some sort of aggressor, um, the ones who were taking responsibility for splitting Europe on an ideological basis. Um, so Marshall kept grilling Kennan uh, in, in private to walk him through how they would get Stalin to reject this. And they had this multi-layered plan um, such that if Stalin initially um, did show serious interest in participating, they would uh, subtly um, change the conditions over time until he finally be, um, uh, found them intolerable. Uh, Chip Bolin, who was um, uh, Marshall's Russian translator, um, at one point he explained to Marshall, look, if we get to the point that Stalin seems absolutely determined to participate in this thing, we can just tell him, great, we could use another creditor who could help out Western Europe. In other words, um, they would treat the Soviets as a donor, not as a recipient. So there's absolutely no way that um, uh, Marshall and the State Department were going to abide the Soviets being part of this. But it was absolutely critical to provoke Stalin into rejecting it so that Stalin would be the one responsible for splitting Europe. And really, that's precisely how it played out. And he he fell for it, which 
which surprised me when I read that in your book, because coming out of the episodes that we've done on Yalta and Potsdam, I had this view of Stalin as the world's cunning, cunningest, I don't think that's a word, most cunning, cunningalist, the world's cunningalist negotiator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, trust me, we... He and Churchill had many long nights. We've already drilled into that in Yalta, drunken, drunken orgies. But anyway, the, the, the world's most cunning negotiator. He, he, he comes across during Yalta and Potsdam as the guy who knows all the buttons to push, all the strings, and, and, and <laughs> partly because of his long history in, in, in doing these sorts of things, secondly because of his personality, and thirdly because he's got spies everywhere who are telling him what the other side wants. But for him to fall for this as quickly and as easily as you make it out in the book uh, really struck me as a very strange failure of nerve uh, uh, on behalf of Stalin. I agree. There's this um, lovely um, uh, episode um, in, uh, in Paris where Molotov is negotiating with his um, British and French counterparts. That's uh, Ernest Bevin, the British foreign minister, and uh, Georges Bidot, the French foreign minister. Um, and he's, he's not exactly being pleasant, but um, um, he's being cooperative uh, day after day, um, looking to see if there might be some way to um, split the British and French from the Americans. And all of a sudden, in the, the, the midst of a negotiating session, while Molotov himself is speaking, speaking he's handed a telegram um, from Stalin. And what the telegram lays out is um, uh, intelligence that they are receiving from their moles in, in um, uh, Washington and London, their British moles. This is Donald McLean and, and Guy Burgess, um, which makes clear... Um, that the aim of the, the Marshall Plan, uh, one of the aims of the Marshall Plan, is um, uh, to turn Germany um, into this um, uh, economic engine of a unified uh, Western Europe. Um, and ultimately, um, uh, the, the Americans aim to um, uh, split the Soviet um, satellite nations uh, from the, the Soviet bloc. And so Stalin makes clear in this um, that you, you must not allow this to go forward. And Molotov at that point becomes utterly belligerent. Um, uh, Acheson de describes this um, uh, beautifully on the basis of feedback he gets from State Department colleagues um, uh, uh, who are in um, uh, Paris, Molotov apparently has a bump on his head that swells when he's under pressure. And as he was reading this telegram, this bump on his head starts swelling, and he becomes utterly belligerent, um, condemns the Marshall Plan as a vicious American plot to take over Europe, uh, stands up and storms out. Um, and uh, uh, Bideau and Bevin go into celebrations. <laughs> Uh, with the um, uh, American ambassador after this. They, they're, they're stunned that Molotov fell into this trap. Classic. Um, so, I, I mean, do you have any 
explanation for why Stalin's uh, reputation for being the world's master negotiator didn't uh, play out in this instance, how he didn't see through the American trap? Or was there just no way to see through it? Even, even after the conference, even after Molotov's walkout, um, the Soviets were still trying to play some sort of game here. Um, they figured maybe we can um, uh, split the Western nations from the United States. We can undermine this thing from within. So in early July, you have this fascinating few days where Molotov first sends out a series of telegrams um, to all his embassies in the satellite countries, telling them to make sure that their governments participate in this um, new meeting that's being convened by the British and the French in Paris among the potential recipient countries um, to uh, discuss the details of a proposal that they will give back to the Americans for martial aid. And he tells them to participate. Now, the purpose of their participation, um, he makes clear, um, is to undermine the scheme and ultimately walk out um, when um, uh, uh, they fail to, to moderate it to uh, um, accommodate Soviet interests. Um, so this, this is their marching orders. Um, the problem is that the reaction from the Czechs and the Poles is so enthusiastic that Molotov um, suddenly panics and realizes that he can't trust these guys. These, are, these uh, governments are not talking like people who can be counted on to go off to Paris um, and storm out of uh, an, an aid conference. Um, he thinks that they're going to, they may be blindsided by the Czechs in particular signing on to this thing. So a few days later, he sends out uh, uh, um, new telegrams, completely reversing his order of a few days ago and telling them they can't go. Um, the polls, it takes a, a, a little twisting for them to accommodate themselves to this, but, but they do. Um, the Czechs, however, just won't take no for an answer. And this really freaks Stalin out. He, he summons the um, Czech uh, cabinet uh, to, to Moscow to read them the riot act about this. And they're still pleading with him um, uh, to, if not allow them to go, to give them uh, enough aid from the Soviet Union to, to make up for what they were going to lose by not participating. And Stalin had no intention of, uh, of doing this. So Stalin really realizes what a mortal threat this Marshall Plan is to his newly won security buffer in Central and Eastern Europe, that the Americans may create this new hostile democratic capitalist Germany at the heart of Europe and may start peeling off um, uh, uh, the, 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 the Czechs first and perhaps the Poles down the road, and he can't abide this. So that ultimately explains why he felt um, he had to make an explicit rejection of the uh, proposal. 
So mm. in the interest of time, and of course, the background for everything you just said was that the United States has the bomb and the Soviet Union doesn't. Um, yeah. So in the interest Absolutely. Of, yeah, in the interest of time, would you, um, it sounds like the answer is yes, but would you consider the Marshall Plan a success and, and was it necessary? Um, uh, y- yes, I would. Um, let's talk a, just a little bit about the, the money because we, we haven't uh, mentioned that yet. This is $13.2 billion um, over four years. Mm-hmm. In uh, current dollars, this would be a little under $140 billion, But more importantly, as a percentage of U.S. output, uh, today an equivalent market Marshall Plan would be $800 billion. So this was enormous, an enormous commitment of money from the United States. And as you yourself pointed out, the U.S. economy had contracted by 11.5% in the year before um, uh, Marshall's Harvard speech. So this was really a, a remarkable initiative. But as I explain in the book, if when economists started looking for the what you know the normal Keynesian mechanisms by which this um, money might on its own um, have produced such an, a quick and enormous recovery in the Western European economy, they can't do it. They ask, well, was it because it allowed Western Europe to import more than it otherwise would have? The answer is yes, but not that much. It couldn't possibly explain more than a small fraction of the enormous recovery. Was it because it allowed more government spending? No. In fact, government spending as a percentage of output actually declined um, over, the, over the Marshall period. So what explains this? Um, I think Kennan got it got it um, uh, right. Kennan said that the primary um, uh, uh, benefit of the Marshall Plan would be an enormous psychological boost in Western Europe. He was determined that this plan be spread over four years to convince the Europeans that unlike after World War I, we were not going home. We were not going to disengage. We were going to stick with them through thick and thin. Um, and this, I do think, had a, a, an enormous um, impact on the revival of private enterprise in Europe. However, and I mentioned this earlier, the French and the British made very clear to the State Department that they could not participate in the State Department's vision of producing an integrated Western European economy without security guarantees from the United States. The French in particular said, look, if we go forward with this, we're not going to be self-sufficient. So what are we going to do if Germany um, uh, denies us coal? Or the Soviets take over Germany and deny us uh, coal? If, so if we're going to participate in this thing and become interdependent, no longer self-sufficient, you are, the United States are going to have to provide us with iron-clad security guarantees. And that's what ultimately led to the launch of NATO. And interestingly enough, the NATO legislation um, in April of 1949 came a, a, a year and a day after passage of the Marshall legislation in uh, April 1948. And it's interesting, by the time you get to 1949, there's a real evolution in thought in the State Department as they come to realize that the, the Marshall Plan really does need a military element. And they start referring to um, uh, um, NATO, this new uh, North Atlantic Security Alliance, as a quote-unquote military ERP, military 
um, European uh, recovery plan. Fascinating. So we, we're going we're gonna to give you all this money, but we're going to send uh, some guys with guns just to make sure no one takes it. Um, well, but this is, this is a real change in mindset, mind you, because remember, as I explained at the outset, the initial idea behind the Marshall Plan was to find a way to disengage from Europe militarily. Yeah. And we failed in that regard. So the Marshall Plan, I would argue, would never have succeeded on its own. It had to have this security element. Well, the, and the other question about whether or not it was a success uh, is about what it did to help bolster the American domestic economy. I mean, we, we talked at the beginning about how the American economy was going into retreat after World War II. We've explained on this show many times before that the American economy had been suffering from repeated recessions and or depressions since the late 1900s. Uh, what effect did the Marshall Plan end up having on the American economy? Very positive, but not in the way um, uh, many people think um, uh, it, it, it did. Um, the Soviets and many Western revisionist historians believe um, that it, it was a scheme to revive the U.S. Um, economy by dumping our on Europe. Um, and it was nothing of the sort, really quite the opposite. One of the um, uh, key aims of the Marshall Plan was to restore Germany to its traditional role as the main provider of capital goods to Europe um, that would make uh, Germany, again, self-sufficient. Um, and um, uh, agricultural goods and commodities would be imported into um, uh, Germany in return to produce a, a balanced trading relationship within Europe. And we in the United States consciously um, hurt our, our export industries in the short term in order to replace ourselves as the primary capital exporters um, to Europe uh, with Germany. Um, but if we had not done that, if we had not made that um, short-term sacrifice um, to produce this new balance within the European economy, um, Europe would never have revived. Uh, as I said at the outset, Europe had meager stashes of uh, dollar and gold reserves at this point. Um, uh, they were going to use them up uh, imminently. So over the longer term, um, it, it was the revival of Western Europe through this mechanism was vital um, to supporting uh, our own economy, um, that we would never have had this vital um, uh, trading relationship between the United States and Western Europe had we not uh, taken the Marshall Initiative after World War II. So it was more of a long-term investment in the health of the American economy. Very much so, um, and, and not just economically, but um, uh, geopolitically. Um, uh, in the book, I have this a uh, wonderful prescient um, uh, quote from Senator uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., a Republican in 1947, 
writing to uh, Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg, who's really one of the heroes of this story. Without Vandenberg, um, the legislation would never have made it through a re Republican Congress. Um, um, Lodge wrote, quote-unquote, the recovery of Western Europe is a 25- to 50-year proposition, and the aid which we extend now and in the next three years will in the long future result in our having strong friends abroad. Now, think how right that was. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet alliances collapsed overnight, whereas the alliances that the United States created, in particular NATO, were as strong as ever. The Central and Eastern European countries were clamoring to get in. The European Union, which was really a creation of the State Department, um, it was a, a vital component of the Marshall Plan, was as popular as ever, and the, these newly liberated countries of Central and Eastern Europe were clamoring to, to get in. This is testimony, I believe, to the uh, far-sighted vision uh, behind the Marshall Plan. It was enorm an enormous success in that regard. All right, Ben. Well, I know we have to let you go. You need to go and relieve yourself. No, I mean, sorry, relieve your babysitter, you said earlier. Maybe both. Um, I'll let you pick the priority uh, of those. But... It, it is a tradition on the show when we have esteemed, highly intellectual, highly respected guests on the show that we uh, ask them to do uh, a 60-second lightning round where we ask you a series of very fast questions. Would you mind sticking around for one more minute sure. to do that? All right. Ben Steele, this is your lightning round. Pressure See if you pass on to the uh, next level. Yeah. You're, you're, you have to answer these questions as quickly as possible. Your time starts... Now, you're being banished to a desert island and you only can take one CD. What is it? Oh, my gosh. And what does this have to do with the Marshall Plan? Okay, uh, Sarah McLaughlin. Nice. Which book? One book. Uh, which book would I take? Uh, um, John Lewis Gaddis's biography of George Kennan. Oh, really? I'm not a big fan of Gaddis. Okay, <laughs> we'll keep going. One film? What film? Memento. Oh, starring an Aussie. Nice choice. One person? <laughs> One person. I, I, I have to say my wife. Can you imagine if I didn't yeah. say that? <laughs> no. She's not going to listen to this. None of our wives listen to this. You can, you can be honest. Okay. Do, do you believe in contracausal free will? <laughs> I need a definition first. <laughs> free will that goes against cause and effect. Free will oh, outside no, of I cause and effect. I absolutely do not. I'm a, I'm a determinist. Excellent. Excellent. Welcome to it. You're a good company. <laughs> if you had to spend a night alone in a cabin out in the woods with either Stalin, Churchill, FDR, Truman, Bevan, Attlee, or De Gaulle, who would you choose oh, and why? Gosh. Uh, FDR. I mean, FDR is uh, not only one of the most uh, important figures in modern history, but um, certainly the most enigmatic. And the the, upper, the opportunity to, to try to get behind that would, would uh, be too much to pass up. And you knew he'd be making you martinis all night long <laughs> as well. So there's that. <laughs> With Churchill, you and, could say the same thing, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Champagne and cigars. But and also the good thing about true, uh, FDR is he can't get away if he gets bored with you with you asking questions. So that's <laughs> that was a good thing. Would Japan have surrendered even without the use of nuclear weapons? Uh, much later, much later, um, I, I don't don't believe it would have been in uh, in uh, August of forty five. No, 
not not when uh, the Soviets uh, ended their you know peace pact with them. Well, as you know, the After the the, uh, the uh, Soviets re- really had no particular desire to fight. They just wanted to to take territory, and um, uh, they were <laughs> were going going to make the the minimum exertion to achieve their strategic goals. Yeah. So, um, you know, FDR clearly overpaid for uh, Soviet cooperation on the Pacific front. Ray and Stalin have that in common, minimum <laughs> exertion to achieve their goals. How many economists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> I, I, think the, I think the number is, uh, is, is, is almost uh, infinite because, of course, we would um, uh, each of us launch our own journal to uh, promote our, our doctrinal views of uh, exactly how a light bulb uh, should be changed in theory. Um, and uh, as you know, reality just creates new new data points to um, uh, uh, promote new ideologies. So it goes on forever. Is it true President Truman once said that he wanted a one-handed economist? Yes, I, that, I mean, that, that, I, I wasn't there, obviously, but you do have multiple recountings of it. Tell people the rest of the gag. Oh, well, that um, he, he was uh, so annoyed with being uh, told uh, by economists, well, every time he asked a question, what should I do? Well, on the one hand, um, you could do X. On the other hand, you could do Y. Um, that he was <laughs> determined to find one that would give him a single coherent response. <laughs> and last question, when the new world order takes over, how many virgins do economists get? <laughs> this is getting weirder and weirder, you know that? <laughs> That's the whole idea, Ben. You don't have to answer that. I'm sure uh, it's a top secret in the Council of Foreign Relations. Um, ben, thank you so much. Like the Marshall Plan, um, it's something I've been fascinated with for many years, and I've struggled to find a good contemporary uh, take on it that was uh, uh, balanced, and I think yours is, and it's a terrific book, and we encourage all of our readers to go and grab a copy of The Marshall Plan by Ben Absolutely. Steele. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy evening to chat with us thanks for having me i enjoyed it thank you sir bye-bye right take care gentlemen thanks ben have a good night bye okay ray what did you think of our chat oh my god so so many things that we covered um and i meant to mention this the last time we were talking before we started with the atomic bomb that if you look at the times if you look at the date in the times of when the japanese surrendered you're right in that they surrendered right when they soon after they heard that the Soviets were getting in the war. So some some people argued that it was um, that they were going to surrender soon after that that we did not need to use the bomb. But like Mr. Steele said, there's another component of it that they maybe would not would have fought very hard that uh, that they just would have grabbed land as much as they could. That the Japanese because of their culture would have hung in there and. It truly would have been a bloodbath for the Americans to go in and to the point where they would surrender. So I don't know if we'll ever know the truth, but there's a lot of interesting varying points on that. Um, but as, as we all know, we don't we don't have to find out. We can't change history. There's no alternative history. We dropped the bomb. They surrendered. And we all have to live with that. Two bombs. What? Two bombs. Two bombs. Right, right. We dropped, we dropped two bombs. Two bombs. Um, and we have to live with that. And, and, and if the first bomb wasn't for the Soviets, you can damn best be sure the second bomb was for the Soviets. 
Anyway, we're going to go into detail about the uh, ifs, yes. buts, and uh, wherefores of the decision to drop the bomb in coming episodes. We'll be back uh, next week with more talk, actually, about the development of nuclear weapons. Uh, and it involves spies running through Germany, American spies trying to figure out what the Germans are doing with the bomb. Uh, lots of lots of good uh, espionage, mm-hmm. lots of look, thrilling tales. So I hope you enjoyed our chat with Ben. It's, it's a little bit... Um, we jump jumping a little bit ahead of ourselves in the timeline here with the chat with Ben talking about the Marshall Plan. Obviously, we're a couple of years ahead, but his yeah. book's just come out. So it was a good opportunity to get him on good and read. have a chat. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.